I accidentally nearly walked in front of Eddie Izzard as he's run into the Jonathan Ross studios. It was like mad. The first series was pretty bad, really, if I'm being honest. I think we nearly got sent home, true story, after about three, four weeks because it wasn't working, the voiceover. Sometimes a lot of Laura would notice me like doing like essentially a gig in the kitchen while we were making dinner and she'd be like, you need to go on Twitch or like do a gig or something. This is Show on the Road, brought to you by Autotrader. We're driving famous faces on a personalised road trip, visiting the places that help shape them and hearing how the locations turn them into who they are today. We've matched each celebrity with a car chosen specifically for them. So join me, Alex Leguie, as we get this show on the road. Chances are you'll know my next guest the moment you hear him speak. He has one of the most recognisable voices in the country, thanks to his amazing, very funny commentary on hit reality show Love Island. It is, of course, Ian Sterling, who is a critically acclaimed comedian. So we're very lucky that he had some time to take a drive with us And we're about to visit some of the London haunts that have been key locations in Ian's life. And I am so excited to show him this car. It's small, classic, 1972 classic, with an amazing modern twist. So we've matched Ian with this MGB GT that has been fully converted to an electric by Frontline. MG's played a huge part in Ian's life, so I'm very excited to show him this little lady and see what he thinks. Oh, wow. Oh, she's a classic. So much smaller than I remember. Look at it. What do you think? This is amazing. Isn't it? Oh, my God. My dad will be so jealous I get to have a go in this. <laughs> the colour's lovely as yeah. well. And I even remember the fold-down boot at the back. Yeah. Has it technically got some seats in the back? Have you... Well... I mean, you'd have to be double-jointed, really, to use them. Oh, my God. It's gorgeous. It really is. And it's fully electric. This is fully electric? Yeah. Oh, is it like a rebuild? Yeah. Who would have thought you'd have saw the day? <laughs> Look at it. I just love it. It's just the shape's just timeless. Should I try and get it? Yeah. Look at <laughs> it. Oh, my God. I think we can safely say that he likes it. Oh, it's got a lot of leg room. Surprisingly, right? I guess let's get going, shall we? Can I just say, as someone that's not from London originally, London in the sunshine, especially when you're near the water, like yeah. all the big buildings, I'm, I will be 90 and I will still be blown away by the fact I live here. Yeah, agreed. Every time I go over any of the bridges, which I always sort of recognise from the East Enders, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> I, view, I just always think, imagine living here. Like, men, I used to, like, like once I came here, once with my family on like a holiday I remember thinking you must be so like it must be so mad to live here yeah. it still blows my mind that I do it's incredible and it, they just think everything through so much and like you just and like there's all the the, the skyline's just so yeah. iconic like Oxo Tower Gherkin all those sorts of things you just like mad you can just casually wander past them like and then down on the embankment as well here like I spent so much time down this way when I was um when I first moved to London anyway, which is like wild. 
like literally walking this is like the walk up from the tube station so like I remember this walk doing it so many times and I guess this is because you'd be walking to comedy venues yes yes so there's a load round here on the embankment one of the boats is called the Tattershall Castle yeah that's great and um, I think it is still called this they do like weekend gigs on Fridays and Saturdays called the Boat Show um, and it was run at the time, and I think it might still be. It was run by a guy called Christian Knowles, who's a brilliant guy. He like represents like Mickey Flanagan and stuff, and he's really big, but love in the comedy world, but lovely lad. And um, I came down here, and you, when you first start doing stand up and comedy and stuff, you have to do tryout spots. We do like five ten minutes unpaid. And I'd done like a spot down here. I'd been gigging in Scotland for like a year, and I came down here and done a gig at the Tattershall Castle. And it went really well. And then he came up to me after the gig and he was like, that was, he went, I can't not pay you for that. And he gave me like no. 30 quid. Yeah. And that was like the first time I've like ever been paid to do comedy. Huh. Um, and it was like mad. It was just absolutely mad. And for a man that that high up in the industry or whatever to do that. And then I ended up, he booked me for weekends. And getting weekends is quite hard. So I ended up doing weekends there. Wow. Long before I was doing any paid work anywhere else, which sometimes didn't necessarily work out. So you grew up in Edinburgh. Edinburgh, yeah. The cap it's the capital of Scotland, Edinburgh. I don't know if you know that about it. <laughs> a lot like of the people, Glaswegians. A lot of people think that. it's Glasgow. Glasgow yeah. is actually it's got a larger population, Glasgow. I'm quite apologetic and sort of um Unsure of myself in in many ways, like aspects of my personality and my, my myself. Mm-hmm. But then the sort of weird the Scottish thing is it's this thing that I'm incredibly unfailingly proud of. So it's really nice to have that string to your bow. Yeah. I like telling people that I'm Scottish, I like talking about Scotland. I love coming from a country where if you meet another person with your accent in another country, it sort of feels like this really exciting yeah. things happened. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if English people have that quite as much. Like if you meet a Scottish no way. Accent, Yeah, if you meet a Scottish accent in like Spain, you sort of are almost expecting it. Ultimately I think the thing if someone if someone Scottish finds success then they are Scottish as a Scottish success story which yes. is quite which I quite like like do you know what I mean like um like if you, comedians Kevin Bridges for example is quite obviously from Glasgow and the, or the surrounding areas but everyone in Scotland just sees him as like this Scottish guy this yeah. one good Billy Connolly yes Andy Murray yes that's technically of from Ed, well Ed well near enough yeah. Edinburgh he supports Hibs that does it for me <laughs> um, but um, yeah all Scottish so I, 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 so that is a thing that we're all very proud of what was little Ian like? Um, what was I like? So a bit odd quiet I guess um, very sporty I would never I could never I love, I love sport but I, I couldn't sit and watch it like I, lo- I love my golf and like I would if I was watching golf on telly for whatever reason I'd have to watch it through the window while I was in the garden like hitting a ball around because I couldn't yeah so quite active I guess done lots of different things sort of jack of all trades master of none sort of thing <laughs> so you weren't like the class comedian absolutely not no I think it was um I suppose now I know that I'm into sort of like um like doing stand-up and that obviously I've discovered that I like sort of like performing and mm. that sort of thing but that really wasn't an option where I where I grew up so like just where I grew up people wouldn't be into like the music I was into or like you know dress like how I would want to dress and do the things I wanted to do I sort of like like 
rock music and pop, that sort of like early noughties pop punk, like Offspring and Blink-182 and all that sort of stuff. That just wasn't a vibe in my school. Right. So I was just sort of like never really had anyone in my school that I was like, oh, I like this thing. So I don't think I met my sort of like tribe, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Until university. Then I got to university and then like, yeah, then I discovered people that yeah. like to work, study hard and drink booze so then I met all those people and then I sort of feel like then I was like oh I can just be myself now and then I got into as a result I got into performing and doing all that because I felt confident enough to do it so but you didn't do performing at uni you did law I thought there was a big game plan with it I think it's just one of those things I'm sure a lot of people feel the same like I basically didn't like anything at school enough to do it Mm. there was no subject at school that I thought oh my god I want to do this five days a week every day and then I just so happened to have the sort of uh, exam results that meant I could do, like, law. Yeah. So I thought it'd be mad not to do law. And no one in my family had been to uni or anything. So it's quite exciting to sort of be ah. the first person from your family to not only go to university, but then for that to be law school. Yeah. It felt sort of too good an opportunity to pass up sort of thing. You were the, the bright one. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't... I think it was more just my mum and dad just encouraged that aspect of me. Like, when my... When, when my mum and dad grew up, it was sort of, you left school when you could to get a job, do you know what I mean? It wasn't... Yeah, of course. Education wasn't looked on with the same importance. I think it was more... My, my mum and dad are 100% more intelligent than me. Jesus, I'm a borderline idiot, like, sometimes. <laughs> my sister's definitely more intelligent than me. So how did you go from law at uni to comedy? At Edinburgh, they have the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Yes. The biggest part of the Fringe Festival now is the comedy. So, like, the comedy side of it is more than half, I think, now, or at least a good third plus. So I went to see loads of comedy shows all through the summer every year when I was really young. And I'd done a few, like, wrote my own. Again, because, like, there was no, like, theatre groups where I grew up, man. Like, none of that. Do you know what I mean? Nobody was, like, practising their plays on the estate or anything right so like me and my mate just wrote some sketches we were sort of obsessed with like Little Britain and Monty Python and stuff at the time and we just put on some shows at the Fringe and that gave me my first taste of it but I never knew what I could do with that and then when I went to uni there was like an improv class thing called the Edinburgh Improverts so I joined that and then from there a few of those guys were doing stand-up so then I went to a few stand-up gigs and then I sort of assumed, again, even back then, because I didn't know, I thought stand-up, you just were like, I just assumed that like, you were a professional comedian, you'd done comedy. I sort of didn't think there was like, do you know what I mean, open mic nights and places you could train. So then I found all them. And then I went to Norway in my third year of uni. And then I couldn't do like improv and stuff, so I started writing stand-up a lot. And then when I came back from my final year of uni, I started doing stand-up. I just had written all this material. That's it there, isn't it? That's the that's the that's the that's the tattoo show right there, the tattoo show castle. Huh. Look, they've even got a little poster up for the comedy. And it's right in the bottom at the front of the boat. That's where it is. And then sometimes if a wave hit or something, literally during the gig, a wave might hit the boat and you'd sort of like rock. <laughs> so I can't remember who it was. It might have been Charlie Baker, one of the one of the regular hosts there. He used to sort of say a reference of like it was the only gig in the country where like the more drunk you get, the more steady you got on your feet. <laughs> Like, if you, were, if you were so drunk, you would sort of naturally counteract the sort of sway of the boat. So that was it. But, yeah, I, honestly, I think that's probably... That's probably up there, like, easily the, the, the top two or three venues that I've... The amount of times I've gigged in there. 
Who at the time then, when you were starting off, would have been your sort of comic idols or, well, or influences? Russell Howard was like, there's Russell Howard sort of, um, I don't think he'd done it intentionally, but he sort of single-handedly led the, and I th- he'll hate the term because he's not, it's not really him, but there's this sort of, in the comedy world, there's this sort of phenomenon known as like the t-shirt comedian. Because, like, before Russell Howard, yeah. there was never someone that was, like, young and optimistic yeah. and, like, sort of kind of good-looking in a sort of, like, geeky, quirky way. And he would, like, wear, like, ripped jeans and, and yeah. his trainers were a bit scuffed and he'd come on and do his stuff. So, yeah, Russell sort of gave birth to this sort of, like, generation of, like... I guess it's one of those things. That's why, like, representation is so important on television. Because for us, it was, like, all these... As a young guy, you would just look at me like, oh, that's like me, and I want to do comedy like that. I never knew comedy could be sort of like, I love this mm. thing, and I like... So, yeah, Russell was massive. That's interesting. Like, it's accessible for people. Yeah, you well, that's why you like need that, it. That's why human. you need it. You need to see yourself. You need to yeah. see yourself echoed in, like, whatever you do. It's, like, really, really important. But then, like, before that, that was... Russell was a person for thought, oh, I could do something like that. But, like, in terms of, like influences is pretty like especially being from Scotland it's obviously like Billy Connolly sort of like he's just undeniable like he's just the greatest were you nervous before or or uh, you know and are you now no not now if I'm being completely honest like it's nearly 15 years like it's sort of if anything I wish I could get more nervous because I might actually do like some more writing and stuff before I do gigs like there's certain gigs I get nervous for there's ones that are you know are going to be quite tricky or like ones that are filmed or like if they're like particularly quiet or particularly busy Mm -hmm. but generally speaking it's just it's like a job like a really fun job so I don't get that nervous Um, at the start like I get really bad you'd have it all day you'd wake up in the morning and be like I've got a gig it was like hang over your head it sort of made me realise I didn't I sort of messed up uni in my final year because I was because I fell in love with stand up and I was doing it every night but then actually thinking about it like even on a subconscious level my brain having a gig in the evening that takes up so much of your mental capacity when you're first gigging. So, like, the fact I was in lectures and the whole time in my head I was going, oh, no, what if this gig goes badly? What if it goes well? Like, what am I going to say to people? So I think there is a lot of that, like, the sort of low level of, like, stress caused by knowing I was gigging that night probably did have an impact as well on, like, how well I could, like, read things and learn things yeah, and stuff. that makes sense, doesn't it? Well, that's the, that's the excuse I'm going to use yeah, yeah. to my mum why I got to do it too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's still waiting for that sit-down conversation where she's like, now, darling, why didn't you continue down that route? I'm still waiting for the letter from Edinburgh Unigo and we made a huge error. (laughs) It's a 2-1. Yeah. Parliament. Such a cool building. Mad that we're just driving past... Do you know what I mean? That's what I think about London. We're just driving past Parliament. Yeah. It's like, mad. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? The flags are out. Whenever I see flags, it just makes me realise how dumb I am. Like, I don't know... What? No, what's that one them. there? That looks like a Pokemon up there. That looks I like think. Pokemon. That's, an, that's um, Trinidad and Tobago, Jamaica. Perhaps. Cyprus. Well, you know more than Nigeria, I do. Nigeria, Malaysia. Oh, my God, Cameroon. How, how, how are you doing this? It's because I play Wales. FIFA a lot. That's not Wales. <laughs> Pakistan, Ireland. South Africa, oh my God! New Zealand. Listen to you. Australia, Canada, Britain. This is incredible. But the only problem is you can't see the flag, so I can just be saying any any country I want. Yeah, and I and I don't know where's, any of them. Where's so. Obamayang from? That's his one. I can't remember. 
my god, that was that that was exhilarating. That's the most intelligent I think I've ever felt. I'm not but even. There's joking. no one assessing you. I can't assess you. you no, but I'm being very. I'm being very. On, I'm being very honest. I'm being. Ve- I'd like to make that very clear to everyone. I'm being incredibly honest. <laughs> what is the atmosphere like backstage? Like can, wh- when you're at a gig where there's a few of you. Yeah. Now it's very much more workmanlike, but in a lovely way. Like um, you do the everyone sort of arrives just before they're gig, and they normally have to get home. And also, I'm at the age where people are now going home for like they've got to get home to like relieve the babysitter and stuff like that, or just to walk the dogs being home for too How long. How times have changed! I know we should just go out party. Yeah. And now it's like oh, I could do it for lying actually. It'd be lovely. So yeah, it's, the vibe's pretty cool, pretty chill actually. I do feel sorry sometimes an occasional punter will, like get especially nowadays we'll get backstage especially when we're getting out of town so there's like three or four comics out of town so we're all trying to work out how to get like drive back or what hotel we're staying in and a drunk audience member will like get into the oh, really? backstage area they might find it accidentally sometimes yeah. they're literally behind the curtain yeah or they'll just find, walk into the room by mistake or maybe they're just drunk and they burst in and I think they're expecting like seven jesters like juggling juggling balls and sort of like having a laugh and shot in tequila and they just get like four guys discussing how you pay your toll road fine and like what M road's best quickest back down to London and stuff so they are a bit like oh this isn't what I was expecting what you're not all funny all the time no I mean some of us aren't even funny half the time to be honest is it much harder now because there you have to be so much more careful with what you do and don't say it's difficult right because like do you have to be more careful i don't really think you do i think you get pulled up on stuff more by people that don't like it but the, but then those people just have a voice now like yeah as in like the same people didn't like your stick back then yeah that's um, so I true def- they just I am more, for it i am i would say i am more offense um averse now but that's only because I wouldn't want to put something out that I couldn't stand by because I know people will pull me up on it and that isn't actually necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. I think this whole you can't say anything these days is actually nonsense and you can say whatever the hell you like. Like, literally, you can say whatever the hell you like but you've got to accept that people might object to that and they're allowed to say whatever the hell they like. Yes. you know what I mean? Yes. So I think there's two... The way I look at it is as one of two arguments, is you either are willing to take on that criticism and then you also make sure that what you're joking about, you can justify in your own head and you can justify so you can put those justifications forward. Mm-hmm. Are there any things that you look back on, not necessarily like this where it's offensive, but any other, any gigs where you've looked back on it and been like, why the f- did I say that? Oh, hundreds, like hundreds I've done like, I've, like when I was new, I was an idiot, and it's like <laughs> I've done like m- like like corp like I've done like you do these like corporate bookings or like private bookings, black tie events. Yeah, and I've come out like swearing, using like a ridiculous language, and like getting told to get off the stage after like five minutes because I'm just like, what was I thinking? Yeah, just cause I don't, I didn't know any better, you know. Yeah, and yeah, there's probably there's definitely bits of material that like, I don't stand by now, a hundred percent, but I guess. Like times change and like that's fine. I think that's fine. I think what I would love is I would love I, the the one thing I think is a, a, like I think like a fence in comedy or anything like that. I think the biggest issue for me anyway at the minute is um, not that you can't say anything because I don't I don't believe that's true. Like I'm a I'm like 
I'm a straight white guy, like, believe me, I've, I can, I mean, we're pretty bulletproof at the minute, as much as some people like to think that's not the case, but, like, we're a very privileged area. Yeah. Um, but what I would like to happen is, like, um, there just to be a more open, di- to be able to allow, at the minute, arguments don't allow for, like, nuance in the discourse. Like, this is why we've got such a polarised, especially on like social media, like such a polarised standpoint on so many issues at the yeah. minute. Because you sort of feel like you've got to pick a team. Like, a yeah. comedian is either offensive and cancelled, or <laughs> you can say whatever the hell you like and you're a bastion of free speech. I'm like, is there not a grey area? Yeah. Is there not a middle ground where people can say what they like, but they have to be pulled up, held to account, and then maybe go, do you know what, now you've made your point, I'm not going to say that that way anymore. Mm -hmm. That just feels like a much more useful discourse to me, rather than, like, cancelled. Yeah. Or a comedy legend, someone that's saying it like it is. Because also, I don't think there's a comedian alive that wants to be known, that definitely doesn't want to be cancelled, and they certainly don't want to be, like, the bastion of free speech and known as, like, the one person that can say offensive things. Yeah. Because you don't want to be that person either. No. So, yeah, I think... I hope as social media moves on and algorithms and all that sort of stuff, we can open the world up to, like... Um, this guy does not know what lane he's in, does he? <laughs> not at all. He does not know what lane he's in. And now... Come on, buddy. And they're now going to the other lane. He was right middle, right middle, left. Unlucky. Got this. You got this. Uh, yeah, so I just think... Hopefully we'll get to a stage once there's been this correct overcorrection. Yeah. We'll get to a place where like, yeah. And so basically, an answer uh, the ten minute sum- summation of the answer to your question is, you can say what you want, but you've got to accept the fact that you will get you. There's a chance you will be pulled up on what you say, rightly or wrongly. Yeah. And you've got to decide there and then whether you are in the wrong, or if you're going to stand up for yourself. Yeah. And yeah. that's where we're at, basically. That makes sense, doesn't it? What was it like when you very first started or or when you very first had a heckler? Can you remember that, like, moment Um, of like... Well, hecklers are funny ones, right? Because it's sort of... It's actually quite a rare thing to happen. But as a comedian, it's like... the The first thing anyone... Like, if you ever meet a comedian in the street, don't say this only because it's boring. If you want to seem a bit more interesting, the most number one thing anyone says to me goes, "Oh, you do I'm going to come to one of your shows and I'm going to heckle," which is if you think about it, and they're not being nasty, but what a weird thing to say to someone because yeah. that's like going, "Oh, what do you do for a living?" Someone's like, "Oh, I'm a plumber," and you're going to go, "Well, I'm going to come to your job and take a shit in your toilet." Yeah, yeah. Like it's weird, right? Yeah. Sort of, a, it's weird to go, "Oh, I'm a nurse." Oh, well, I'm going to come to your. I'm going to come to. I'm going to come to your work and I mean spread a disease. (laughs) So um, there. So like, but then also hecklers can be really fun. So like, but the the annoying thing is most most of the time hecklers are someone that's like quite drunk and you'll just say like a city like you'll mention like Coventry and someone will go yeah because they're also from there. So um, yeah, most heckler stories are just that really, just like people being drunk. But I've had some, like, I've had some absolute beauties, like, when I filmed my special at, at Alexandra Palace, Ali Pali, in London, actually, this lad went to the toilet, but he was, like, being really sweet. But the, the funny thing was is, because um, it's being filmed, we had to sort of stop the filming until he came back in the room because it disturbed the gig, him leaving. But I didn't want to start to have to stop 
But he then felt bad for disturbing the gig, so he was waiting outside. No. So then we were waiting for like 10 minutes, and eventually some people from the venue like ran around the venue and found him and brought him back in. That's brilliant. So did you have that like whole he room of awkwardness? Well, of... I had like, I was like, we've been waiting for What's you. What's this dude doing? And I was like, he's back, and like the whole room gave him like a standard. <laughs> bit. Like, and then t- this guy, imagine this guy, what a night. He's just been... He thought he was coming to a comedy gig. He's ended up going for a wee and then come back to like fifteen hundred people applauding him in the room. Like, <laughs> and he's made it to the special. And he's oh, you can see it's on, it's on, um, it's on the special. You can watch Brilliant. it. He's literally him walks out. Um, talk to me about Taskmaster. Oh yes, please. My favourite thing I've ever done, probably. What a cool show. Yeah, what an amazing thing to do. Like, um, I sort of um, my only regret and it's very small, is that I'd done Taskmaster, it was in this sort of real height of Love Island blowing up. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'd gone from sort of um, doing, like, 60-seater rooms that I couldn't really fill to, like, gigging most, like, some evenings, but not really, and then having, like, a day to myself, to, like, going on this tour, hmm. selling it out, going to bigger rooms... People wanting to interview you, do podcasts, telly shows. Like, not a criticism, but I mean, then, then Taskmaster was this mad thing that I fitted in around all that madness. Yeah. And now looking back on it and knowing what a special show it was and what an amazing time it was, I wish I'd had a bit more time to like yeah. the day after I filmed Taskmaster just to think, oh, I filmed Taskmaster. Yeah, to actually it be in it, experience yeah, it. Properly. Whereas it sort of felt like, which I think. I think it's reflected in the way I'd done a lot of the tasks. You can tell that, like, I am in a very stressful point of my life when that show is happening. One foot out. Yeah, so I'm sort of always a bit, like, just run into things and, like, I'm not very, um, I'm not very, like, uh, measured. (laughs) (laughs) I don't take my time and think about things. I just sort of rush in. Because I think at that point in my life, Everything was like, we need to keep up with this. This mad thing's happened. And I was sort of adjusting to that. So I'd, I'm, I think if I'd done Taskmaster now, a few years older, it'd be a different thing. But that is such a small thing because, I mean, just what a show. Like, you would just, let's like, 10, 12 days of your year, you would just go to the house, you would sit in a room on your own, they would come in, they'd say, right, come and do this task. Alex would give you a task, you'd do it. you go back into the room, they'd set up another one, do the task, back into the room, and it was just that wow. and then that would be over the course of like six months and the best thing about that show is when you watch the tasks being done back not only are you watching how other people have done them but because you do like 50, 60 in a series you genuinely you probably remember like three or four that you think you've done well yeah but the rest of them, you completely, oh, God, I done that. Like, you completely forget. And the funniest thing is, the three or four that you think you've done well, you watch two other people do it, and you realise, I've absolutely... <laughs> I think there was one we done where we had to, like, find a horseshoe or something. And I managed to run around the house and find a horseshoe in the house. And I remember thinking, I've got five points. I've absolutely smashed that. I found it. And then... When they showed the video, the first two people they showed was Joe and Paul, who were on my series, and they noticed that there was a horseshoe hanging from above our head. No. So within seven seconds, I realised, not only has it not gone well, but I know they've kept my video to the end because I'm the idiot that didn't spot the thing that was right in front of me. (laughs) You do a lot on Twitch, don't you? My friend and comedian, 
Alfie Brown described it the best, where it's basically long-form social media, meaning it's just a live streaming platform, so you can do whatever you want. The reason I like it is because you're live for an elongated amount of time, so I think it's the most true representation of yourself. Yeah, I was just about to say that. People actually get to see you, you and good probably and bad. you get to be able to just be you, good and bad, and, yeah. and that's okay. Instagram, I feel like you've just got to make everything like look so nice. That's changing a bit, but do you know what I mean? Your reels, mm-hmm. you've got to make things are real and put music to it and make it perfect. And then, yeah, with TikTok, um, TikTok, with Twitter, um, Twitch. With Twitch. <laughs> I'm getting so old, man. With Twitch, you can just um, just log on and be with yourself. <laughs> with the Twitch twatches. Yeah, I just feel like you can just be yourself. It's really nice. I like it. I really like it. It's my favourite platform. The only problem with it, it is a live streaming platform and it's quite a lot of technology to get it up and running. The main game I play is FIFA, and like sometimes I'm really chill and like sort of articulate and talk about some like sort of like stuff that's personal to me. Other times I'm just an idiot, 35 year old man that should know better screaming at pixels on a screen because the game's not gone the right way. (laughs) Do you find, as a result of who you are and what you do, that there is a sort of a social pressure to be that version of you when you're out and about? dinner parties or whatever yeah well I suppose that's, that's another element of like keeping the right people around you like so mm. now uh, the pe- my closest friends and family obviously wouldn't really give a damn about that sort of thing and whereas in the past I might have gone somewhere else people would be like oh yeah be that guy and I might have tried to do it because I didn't want to let people down or because I want to impress people now I would sort of maybe say something like do you know what not today mate I can't mm-hmm. I'm just having a sort of chill one thanks very much I think it's quite important to like be able to just, I don't feel that need to like impress. You're never going to impress everyone. I think that's something you learn as you get older. So I'm still not easy, but I've become much more accepting of that fact. Mm. I think. Yeah. I wonder if the pressure is higher as well uh, as a comedian. Well, I suppose so. I definitely find that like I've, like the most nervous I've ever been is like doing like best men speeches and stuff mm. because I suppose one people think you're going to be funny but two it's that sort of thing that people are like oh I bet you're going to like destroy it and like when I done my best friend Greg's best man speech I was like me and Greg have been friends for so long and that's just not really our vibe mm. so I was like I'm not really going to do that because I, I know he wouldn't want that mm. I sort of like his family and all that I wouldn't want to cause anyone any so yeah you've it's, it is I don't, I don't think it's a huge thing but I definitely think comedian more than like, um, you know, there's other jobs you wouldn't expect the person to do their job at the dinner party. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you, that's true, isn't but it? But like with comedy, there's some weird thing where people go, go, go on then. Yeah. But I do get it, don't get me wrong, I absolutely get it. Like if someone tells me they're a magician and we're at a dinner party, <laughs> I absolutely yeah. would love a card trick. <laughs> yeah. I would love one. That's true. Um, but it's not always the right time and place is it really no but I've always had that weird thing where I'm constantly thinking to myself this forever could I do this forever Uh and I've just never been good enough at anything else Uh really I think that's the difference because you find a lot in stand up you'll get people who do stand up who are really great and they'll do it for like two years and then when they've got to start to like drive from like you know Edinburgh to Durham for like 60 quid yeah they just start going I don't, I don't want this to be my life whereas like I think that's the difference it's like people always say that oh do you feel like you're the funniest guy at your school or whatever like that and I'm never that but I think the actual comedians that stay the distance are the ones that just think they're funny 
it's the ones that like need to be funny yeah like we sort of want want that attention and want that what's the word validation validation yeah basically that's it that's that's what yeah. We de- like we need it we yeah. crave it as opposed to being like oh it's just I'm quite a funny guy and this is a laugh because it's just that's yeah. not, those people don't tend to stick it out That and it's not a big enough motivation no no and also if you're funny down the pub just be funny down the pub don't come to the King's Theatre Glasgow and do it there so we are on the outskirts of Shepherd's Bush what does this mean to you? Shepherd's Bush is my original like sort of stomping ground because um, when I graduated university, I luckily landed a job on Kids TV, the home of which is sort of around the Shepherd's Bush area. So Shepherd's Bush was like basically the first place I properly moved to. This is like the first place I called home in London. And it's like the first place I ever lived in London that had sort of like, the, what I find is like quintessentially London in the sense that it's got like really old, small, niche, weird shops that you don't know how they, like, financially exist. (laughs) And it's also got the Shepherd's Bush Empire and, like, Westfield Shopping Centre and all these big, massive things that are so quintessentially London. It mixed in with, like, little small Chinese takeaways and, like, laundrettes and you've got, like, high-rise council flats next to, like, really expensive, like central London townhouses and stuff and it's just this like mad eclectic melting pot that sort of it's when I went I love this because that's like me like it's sort of like where I grew up as in in the middle of this big city of Mm. stuff so yeah I've I've always felt like yeah it doesn't know what it is Shepherd's Bush and I'm sort of feel like I'm like that a little bit as well and we're about to pass the sewing machine shop. Yes. I mean, wh- why? This is one of this is one of those places that, that genuinely I remember most because I used to live in Shepherd's Bush with um, two men, Dan Clarkson and Phil Fletcher. And Phil Fletcher is a puppeteer, still is, and he mainly um, plays Hacker the Dog on CBBC. That's like his sort of that's what he's most famous for. But I remember his excitement when he realised we lived next to a showing shop because he builds puppets as well. That's what one of his that's what he does as a living. So like he'd go in that sewing shop all the time. And I remember just thinking, the first time I saw that sewing shop I was like, how can a sewing shop financially survive in this sort of like fairly central London location? And then he saw it and just thought, what a genius thing to have. And then we lived like two doors up from that sewing shop and we had like so many like funny memories of like d- nights out like I remember like my single days because he builds puppets we always had puppets in my house wow so like in my single days I remember I met a girl and she was like we went for a bit of dinner whatever. we were coming back to mine for like a drink like ten at night nine at night something like that and we walk into the flat and my friend Phil is there with like five other members of BBC and they've all got puppets on and they're all watching Muppets A Christmas Carol and they're just like acting out the film and this girl like genuinely must have thought I was like a member of like a cult or something. She just like blasted on, she just like left. And I would just ended up hanging out with these nutters and these puppets. So that sewing shop sort of like really closely tied to like those sorts of memories. Look, Olympic sewing is. machines, there it's there. Where 
many iconic puppets have been built there. And then if you literally go, look, there's this church, there's this hairdressers, and then boom, that's our flat. That's how close we were to... We must be the only people who live near to a sewing machine who actually regularly needed sewing machines every day. <laughs> that's my old flat. We're in the, the top floor. Incredible stuff. What a cool place to live. It was really good, actually. And there's a Chinese takeaway near here that's, that's mind-blowingly brilliant. That's important to have So important to have. Distance. And a few decent pubs as well, obviously. Up on yeah. the green. Shepherd's Bush Green's great for pubs. Defectors. Defectors Weld, great. But, and then there was the Ginlick, which is the old converted public toilets. Ginlick was legendary. Christian Knowles, the guy that booked me at that Tattershall Castle, he ran comedy gigs in there. And when he booked me to do a gig there, one of the first ones I ever done was with... And I remember, this is where you're like, London's mad. Because I used to just do gigs in Scotland with, like, other Scottish acts and, you know, whatever. And then uh, the first Gimlet one I'd done, Harry Hill headlined it. He'd done a ventriloquist no. act, actually, weirdly. With, with a puppet. So, loving it. But, um, yeah, he'd, he'd done... Uh, that was the first thing he ever done. So I was like, this is amazing. For people listening who don't know Gimlet, it is, was, I'm assuming it's not open anymore, although I don't know for certain. It's a converted underground toilet, isn't it? Right by Shepherd's Bush It's an old public toilet that, I think it was part of the old Shepherd's Bush station that they then converted into a sort of bar and nightclub. But it was mad busy back in the day. I'm just very artsy. I always had really interesting conversations down there. Yeah, I don't, don't, you'd never remember them, but you'd have them. So we're now heading up to the BBC yeah. TV studios. What were you doing before you started with the BBC? Literally university. I got the job at the BBC while I was at uni. Really? Yeah. So like, I had my last exam on a Thursday. Yeah. I moved to London on Sunday and I'd done my first bit of telly on the Monday. Here. I was actually late. So the first day I ever done, it was... Well, the first day of live TV, they said like you're on camera at nine o'clock, but they meant like, now I've only ever had like normal jobs. So after that meant like get there at nine. And I think I was like three, four minutes late. So I missed my first ever live link on telly because obviously at eight, they were like, it's live at night. Meaning they were like, get here for like half seven, here and makeup, writing your script. But I didn't know any of that stuff. So I just showed up at three minutes past nine and I missed the first link. Wow. It's a bit of a disaster really. But then they sort of realized, oh, maybe we should have told this 21 year old kid that's literally four days ago was sitting his like corporate law exam <laughs> the how telly works but yeah and then like I, honestly I look back at this time so fondly and I'm so fortunate that I got to work in this place like walking through like there's like the donut which if, if you're my generation was like the round building that like enlivening kicking the little bouncy ball spun round at the end and flew up and uh, there's loads of funny like there's a little walkway still there that um, when Alan Partridge didn't get his second series and he's walking down going, you're all on the BBC gravy train, I wish I was, with his wheel of cheese on a fork. That's literally that little road down there. Although, what is it now? It's like a really posh, like, um, coffee shop or whatever now. But this used to always be buildings. And that iconic television centre sign. Like, the fact I got to what, and this used to have a massive gate across it. You'd have to tap your BBC pass and... Every day I'd tap my BBC pass, and even young, I remember thinking how lucky I was that I get to come into this building, like, every day. And we used to be just up there, 
West Tower it was called it's now been totally brought down it all had asbestos in it at the end so they had to like rip it all out but yeah I used to be in this building here and then there in the television centre in there and I remember having like so many mad stories like once I like um was coming at the left of the bar and we got rugby tackled by a floor manager me and my friend Phil and Eddie Izzard ran past as he was doing like remember he'd done his 50 marathons and then he ran into to Jonathan Ross and like I accidentally nearly walked in front of Eddie Izzard as he was running into the Jonathan Ross studios it was like mad no. it is such a cool building it's so honestly it's so beautiful and like I think it's listed so like there's all this new building around it but the actual circular BBC building has remained unchanged so like it's really cool that that's Sort of, I, I love that I was like so ingra- ingrained in like such a big bit of history. Like all the children in needs were there. Obviously, worked at BBC, so we would just we would just wait after work. Uh, even if we didn't have the passes, could we be in the building? So then, like as of like nine o'clock, so we're already in the building. We get to go to like children in need and comic relief, and just sort of like blag our way to like the bar areas and stuff. It was so nice. It was great. Were there any parallels between like that TV work and the work you do now on Love Island? Well, I guess it's, like, right into a spec, I guess. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, with kids' TV, you've got, like, the parameters of, like, what you can talk about and the language you can use and all that sort of stuff. And then, I guess, in, with Love Island, you've got to sort of... You've not got the visuals and you've got you've got to be very economic with your word uses because you can only really write two lines and you've got to do, do a joke and tell the story of what's happening. So, like, they're both within quite strict... Para- like, doing comedy within strict parameters, I feel like I've always done that. Which is sort of quite mad, but yeah. So there are there are very different things. Did you enjoy kids TV? Yeah, I loved it. Like I really loved it. I sort of look back and I think it was probably the best TV I made as well because it was live every day. We were sort of left to our own devices. There's loads of clips online like that. I was just really proud of it. it would go wrong. We'd always get way around it, and no one was telling us what we what to do. Really, we were sort of left at it. And me and Phil, who was hacker the dog, we we, we worked together for like every day five days a week for like three years so we sort of knew each other inside out by the end so yeah I'm really proud of it it's really fun time actually really lucky to have started that way it's great do you write all of your script on Love Island yeah yeah I write it with a guy called Mark who's like a really cool guy so I write it with Mark and um, he uh, he actually came up with a format as well so every year Love Island does well. It's like a little bit Brucey bonus for him as well. But yeah, we write it together. We've always written it. I was sort of... They didn't really ask me to write it at the start, but they also didn't really... At the start of Love Island, they just didn't really know what to do with me. And not in the sense that I just sort of showed up to Spain to record it. And that was only my job. But it felt mad to go all the way to Spain to, like, to record something for an hour to then go home. So, um... Yeah, I ended up just going early and sitting with Mark, and me and Mark really got along, and then, yeah, just recorded it all. So it was really, like, it felt really nice, like, um, it felt really, like, it felt, we just got, we, we just made each other laugh, and then, obviously, the first series was pretty bad, really, if I'm being honest. I think we nearly got sent home, true story, after about three, four weeks, because it wasn't working, the voiceover. But then they sort of managed to keep us for whatever reason, and then, after about two, three series... They were always really funny at it us at the start because we'd obviously do these lines of voiceover where we were like saying the show wasn't very good and it was a bit silly. And they were like, a voiceover can't do that. But then people seemed to like it so now they let us say whatever we want really. So it was like a natural progression. And 
do you find that when you, I have, and I don't know what the process is, but do you find that you see or get to know the cast and then think, oh yeah, this one's going to be a fun one this season? Or this we get be... to know them, we deliberately get to know them as we're getting to know the same as the viewers. I don't know anything. About the, the, the show, like at time of recording, the show starts on Monday. I don't even know the names of the people or like what they're doing. And I'll only find out when I watch the episode. Because I sort of want to find out about the cast in the same way I do, as a punter does. I think mm. that's really important. You could also say it's lazy because it means I don't have to do any work beforehand. But I do think it's useful to, like, you know... It is definitely useful to be as much as a punter as possible. I guess as well, like, times must have changed. I mean, do you still fly out to Spain? Or wherever it is? It's not always um, Spain. Yeah, I used to until very recently. I think, like, a lot of people... I, Locked. I worked from home in lockdown and it just became very apparent that that was very doable. So then it felt like, especially because there's two of them a year now, it'd be like four months away from home. So it's just sort of like not really a, an option. Yeah, I used to, first six series, I was all, I went to South Africa, I went to Spain. It was great, really lovely. And I still go out now because obviously I, I know the team so well and we all get along so well. So we went out as a family, it was really cool. That was nice. Also, the mad thing is, like, I've lived in Spain for over a year of my life. I go for two months every year, and that was for, like, seven years. So, like, I was literally 14 months of my life spent in Spain. But in very, well, short-ish, because two months, but, like, short-ish dribs and drabs. It's mad. I mean, um, technically, you should speak Spanish. I should be fluent. It's very, again, how very British of me that I actually don't speak a lick of Spanish despite <laughs> being there for 14 months. I bet so you can I, order a beer, though. I, what, and that, yeah, two. <laughs> I, know, I know how to order two, but I don't know how to order one. Is there anything that's happened on Love Island that war didn't happen on the show, but you can tell us that we wouldn't have known? An islander turning their phone back on after two months. If you think how many texts they had alone, which is just their friends, the day they appear on the show going, oh my God, I can't believe you're on the show. And they've had two months of like texts and calls. Like uh, one one guy that was on, I can't remember who it was, but their, they, their phone crashed three times as they were turning it back on because there was just so much like traffic going through their phone, it just literally crashed. So yeah, it was wild. So that's pretty cool. I think that'd be a cool thing, but obviously, who would want their phone filmed? as they were turning it on for the first time in two months. Yeah, that's with true. With our mates sending some stupid texts or whatever. So, yeah, no, I, I see I see the final, which is really, like, mad, and, like, them interacting with the presenters and, like, just the way they're sort of, like, the reality of what's happening dawns on them is, like, really interesting. Mm. But in terms of, like, stuff that happens off in the show, there's not really been much. I mean, I'll see the occasional bit, but the annoying thing is, obviously, the stuff that doesn't make the edit is normally the, the most boring stuff. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So like, yeah, I don't really see that much. I would like to see, um, I like to see them spice up that final week, as in like maybe do some more coupley challenges. Like maybe, do you know what I mean? Like live like an actual couple. We've got the babies, and you've got to meet the parents and all that. But I'd love them to like just have to like do each other's washing for the or, or like, do you know like even like set up? I don't know like 
take a photo shoot to like, an, to, like announce the relationship or like, you know, like modern day things you've got to do. Mm. Do you know how people, you know people soft launch the relationship now on like the yeah. internet? Yeah. Maybe they've got like, like set up a soft launch for like announcing they're a couple and stuff. Yeah. I just think there's loads actually... of like, there's loads of interesting things you can do with a new couple that they don't really do on the show yet, which I'd like to see them doing. This is London's best kebab, by the way, just in case you're wondering. I love it when they, uh, it's probably next to the best chicken and they just took the words off. London best kebab. I think they've also had to say London best kebab for legal reasons. So it's not London's. Oh, but yeah. It's, um, it's uh, always freshly made. So your daughter has an Irish mother and a Scottish father. How important is it that she knows about her heritage? Um, I think it's nice when you've got little ones to like um, to give them like. I think being Scottish, I'm sort of very proud of my background anyway. So it's nice to to instill that in between your kids and stuff. Mm. So I, I think that is really important. I think it also helps them get a better understanding of what you're about, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So that feels really nice as well. So. Yeah, it, it, it's really important to us actually, and we try to go back to like Ireland and Scotland as much as possible. Like it's also nice for, nice for the grandparents, nice for us. Yeah. So yeah, it's really and like Scotland, is, I just love it. Like I do generally love it there. So like, I want the people closest to me. Laura as well. Like it's nice going up to Scotland so like Laura can see Scotland and meet like my friends from uni that I knew growing up and all the rest of it. So yeah, really important. Do you see? Is London home? Yeah, it's a good question, and yeah, I would, I would say so. I think, basically, the thing for me, I think, is like I probably thought there's a world in which like I would end up back in Edinburgh, back in mm. Scotland, and then I think if I'd met an English person, I think that might have happened. But I think what happened was Laura obviously has such strong connections to Ireland and her family and everything, mm. and then when she took me to Ireland. I like loved Ireland so much, and then I think she saw how great Scotland was. So I think we both maybe thought at some point we'd end up moving back to our own countries. But then it became this thing of like, well, we both actually have, we both love where we're originally from. So I don't, I don't think Laura knew that I probably couldn't go like to Ireland full time, and she couldn't come to Scotland full time. So we just sort of had to strike up this deal where it was like, well, I guess London is the base that we can get to Scotland and Ireland from relatively easily that was a general vibe I feel like if either of us had met like an English person we probably could have sold them do you know what I mean Dublin or Edinburgh as a place to live but because Dublin and Edinburgh is so great we were both like alright fair play well, London but then also we love London like I just love like we've said before like I love the mixture of people and also the funny thing about being London is you see you meet as many Irish people in London as you do in Dublin there's such a melting pot here that, like, yeah, it's, you see such an array of people. People always say to me, like, oh, um, a nursery's all full of, like, there's everything. So it's such a nice, like, mix. So I, I quite like being in and amongst that mix as well. You were in London for lockdown, right? Yeah, it was, yeah. Sort of madness, really. Me and Laura were in, in the house. It was such a, like, um, it's sort of weird because, like, it was so tricky and, like, obviously, as a stand-up, work sort of finished for like two years really because we are literally 
professional social gatherers, which obviously became very illegal social gathering. <laughs> so like, lots of my friends were out of work and there was like lots of elements of it that were so tough for so many people. There was something about living through an era that you know will be like era defining. It's sort of funny actually doing things that you're like, when you're like standing outside clapping the NHS thinking this will be in modern study textbooks not long from now and I lived it there was a nice stillness about it as well like the, the the idea of having nothing to do that day and actually knowing not only were you doing nothing that day but the guilt free knowledge of nobody was doing anything that day is so like sort true. of mad there was a real um, a real calmness that came with that that I really that I still miss to this day. Me so too. yeah. Yeah. Did you have find that you you guys sort of slotted into a routine and stuff? Yeah, I was doing Twitch. I was doing the Twitch thing and then the most important thing about the Twitch thing was one it gave me an outlet for performing because I remember like sometimes a lot of Laura would notice me like doing like essentially a gig in the kitchen while we were making dinner and she'd be like you need to go on Twitch or like do a gig or something. Do something. Do just be a performer. Stop talking to the source bands. <laughs> Not while we're making a steak and ale pie. <laughs> um so there was that. And then also I would do it in the morning so it's like it sounds really bleak, doesn't it? But it was literally a reason a reason to get out of bed. Mm-hmm. Which is really important. So yeah, we, we sort of got a bit and also we were very lucky like working from home and stuff. The speed that like our uh creative industry adapted I found quite fascinating you know yeah. everyone was switching to Zoom doing you know live live yeah. things interviews podcasts I mean, was it there that your crime podcast was we born? actually done that long after lockdown because I was doing Twitch we sort of um, I, I didn't do a podcast and I sort of it's a bit of me that thinks oh, maybe we should have done something in that time that was sort of podcast related lots of my friends done podcasts and they had so much fun making them. But yeah, no, that was after, but we sort of didn't, we we ne- we don't really work together all that much. Like even in Love Island, we weren't really in a, in a room together working. We weren't doing, we we're doing very different jobs. Mm. So like, um, yeah, that we in lockdown, we sort of didn't do any, I think as well with lockdown, I think the thought of doing, working with someone that you were living with in lockdown seems a bit mad because it was obviously, it's nice to get a bit of downtime, do you know what I mean? So, yeah, no, we didn't do it in lockdown. Maybe we should have done. But um, we, we love doing that, like those podcasts and stuff now. Like, it's yeah. so much fun. Partners in crime. So, how, I mean, how do you go about working together and living together? Well, it's sort of like we've been together for so long now. We've also been through so much. It's really easy, actually. It came really naturally. We just got into the sort of habit of doing it, and like we just really, we just do you know the main thing is genuinely it's like we really it sounds it sounds really daft but like we really enjoy doing it, mm-hmm. and actually we really enjoy that it's true crime. We're sort of not doing that thing where we do a podcast where we like talk about like what it's like to be a couple or whatever. I feel like that's really that's really been done and done well by other people, and we 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 are still quite private people, so we don't really want to talk about our private situation too much. So like, true crime sort of perfectly because that is what we used to do with our time mm. as we sit and watch like I mean Netflix documentaries or like true crime listen to true crime podcasts and all that so it just feels an extension of the conversations we would normally be having anyway if that makes sense yeah so like we literally would be sitting talking about true crime in our house and then we end up doing that and recording it so what's next then for Ian well I'm going to look into buying an MG yeah I'll tell you that for free 
if I can afford one. And um, just do more stand-up, really. Me and Laura are going to hopefully look into doing um, more more true crime podcasts after taking a bit of time. With when we had like children and stuff, I took a bit of time off the evenings. So I'm now just slowly getting back into gigging and building up new material and writing a new show. And I'll go on tour in 2024. That'll be the plan. And see, be in front of audiences again. That'd be nice. Yeah, really nice. Yeah, and I sort of, I always think, oh, I don't know if this is what I want to do anymore. And then I, I get in front of an audience. I'm like, oh yeah, this is actually what I, I was. This is like, I was cut out for this sort of thing. This is what I was born to do, really. So it's nice. How has it been going to your uh, London haunts? Do you know what? It's been really lovely, actually, especially Shepherd's Bush, because Shepherd's Bush was like a sort of like drinking hole, so to speak, for me. And then you sort of just see it as a sort of like night out thing, but then you go back and you think, oh yeah, that was actually really rather important to my like development. Like I met so many lovely people there. And also like BBC, I go there, I still fortunately go there quite a lot, but it's nice talking about it and it's former glories before it had private members clubs and hotels attached to it when it was just a car park in some asbestos laden buildings. That's when it was in, and it's, ironically, that's when a lot of people think it was in its heyday. Mm. So, yeah, it was nice. It's nice to have a little trip down memory lane. And it's also funny doing it in a car that, like, <laughs> my dad drove around when he was probably, like, my age, if you know what I mean. So that's yeah. funny as well. It's been lovely. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. Thank you, too. Is your pop still with us? Yes, he is. Will he... Um... I've sent him a picture already. I'll need to tell you what he says when he... Yeah. Nice car, he's saying nice car. Thank you, thank you, it's not mine. <laughs> okay, there we go. Thank you very much for the lift. I mean, practically to my front door, I very much appreciate it. <laughs> and I love it, and also Gladstone Park in this sun, you don't get much better than that, really. No, it's great, isn't it, finishing yeah. up here? Well, there you go, I'm going to go and have a frolic, which is what I believe people do when it's sunny. Yeah. So thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Any time. Thanks so much to Ian Sterling for taking me on a personalised tour around his old haunts in London. You can see exclusive footage of the drive by heading to the Auto Trader socials. Look at the episode page for links. You'll also be able to see the electric MGB GT that we had such a fun drive in. Plus, we're giving away a brand new electric car for free every single month as part of the Auto Trader electric car giveaway. Find out what we're giving away this month by heading to the episode page. And if you're looking for a new vehicle, you can find your perfect match at autotrader.co.uk. This is a new show, and I'd love you to follow on your favourite podcast platform. Like what you hear? Rate and review, and make sure you tell your friends so you don't miss an episode. Show on the Road is a fresh air production for Autotrader. The executive producer is Annie Day, and the producer is Ollie Seymour. Seymour.